I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been teaching a series for the last several weeks on uh, manifestations of the Spirit. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. One of the great truths is that God does not want us ignorant about the Holy Ghost. Now this word spiritual, uh, the word gifts is in uh, italics, this word. And anytime you find that in the King James, it means the translators added a word to try to help us with our understanding. And in most cases, I think they did a real good job. Not sure they did uh, anything to help us on this one, though. Because in the original Greek, it says now concerning spirituals. The word spiritual is in the plural. Brethren, I would not have you ignorant. And the word spirituals means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. I think one of the um, disadvantages of having the word gifts in this first uh, verse added by the translators is because it gives the impression that everything in chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts. And it's not. He talks about the body of Christ, which must mean the body of Christ pertains to things is included in things pertaining to the Holy Ghost. He concludes the chapter talking about ministry gifts that God sets in the church. Those must pertain to the Holy Ghost too, but they're certainly not manifestations of the Spirit. So he's telling us that all of these things pertain to and are of the Holy Ghost. Then he gives us a list of nine different things that he calls manifestations of the Spirit, commonly called gifts. You understand that even though it's I guess it's okay for us to use the word gifts in connection with this list of nine. They're not gifts like we give gifts to to each other. If I gave you a birthday gift and you could do whatever you wanted to with that gift, you could give it to somebody else, you could return it, you could do whatever you wanted to with it. Well, in that sense, there's no such thing as a spiritual gift because nothing becomes uh, completely under our control. There's nothing of God that comes under our control exclusively These things are manifestations. What's given is the manifestation, not the gift itself. So it says, beginning in verse 4, now there are diversities of gifts. This word gifts is there in the original translation. The translators didn't add it, in other words. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. Now notice, he mentions God, the Lord, and the Holy Ghost, all in connection with these manifestations of the Spirit. Then he gives us the list of nine, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith, the Amplified says special faith, by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healings. And every time, there's three times that gifts of healings are spoken of uh, in, uh, in the Scripture. And in each case, in the original Greek, both gifts and healings are in the plural. It's not translated that way in every case here in the, in the uh, King James, but it's that way in the original. To another, the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse or different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. Now, there's, uh, there's some teaching in the body of Christ. It's been around for a long time. And I'm not here to throw, throw rocks at somebody else's teaching. But I, um, I think our understanding is enhanced and improved when we stick with what the Bible says and just what the Bible says. And so I endeavor to do that. Now, there's some teaching out there that, uh, that takes this list of nine manifestations of the Spirit and combines it with some other lists. It combines it with a list over in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where it talks about ministry gifts. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And then they join it together with this list at the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, prophets, thirdly teachers, and so forth. Um, the teaching is designed... And, and as I understand it, is, uh, is identified as helping you discover your gift in the things of God. Well, folks, may I make a, uh, an observation first and then a comment. First, the observation. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says Jesus gave the gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says the manifestations of the Spirit are divided every man severally as he wills. And then the, the list at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says God said in the church. 
So it's telling us that God has a work in the church. The Holy Ghost has a work in the church. And Jesus has a work in the church. And so the Bible is telling us that these are separate lists. So to, to gather them up together and try to identify something by combining these lists that in the mind of God are separate entities would be um, unhelpful, shall we say. Now here's my comment. If you need a book to tell you you're an apostle, you ain't one. My point is very simply this. God is giving us the entirety of his plan and purpose and work in the church. That's up to us to rightly divide the word of truth. It's up to us to rightly divide what works in what situation and what's given for what purpose. And the Bible helps us to do that if we stick with just what it says. Are you out there? Okay, so we've talked about this list of nine uh, to some degree. We found that this list of nine identifies three of the manifestations that reveal something. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. Three in this list do something. The working of miracles, gifts of faith, and gifts of healings. The special faith and gifts of healings. And then three of these manifestations say something. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. This morning I want to talk to you about faith. Or as the Amplified says, special faith. Now, first of all, we need to identify what is this. Look with me over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. There are different operations of faith as described in the Scripture. Notice in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us about saving faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Well, saving faith comes, according to Romans chapter 10, saving faith comes by hearing the gospel of Jesus. So that wouldn't be a special manifestation of the Spirit, would it? Even though the Bible says that faith is a gift in every area, in every instance. But how does the gift come? Well, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Then we have what we might call general faith, or the believers developing in faith. The Bible says faith grows. Paul wrote to the, I mean the Thessalonian church and he commended them because their faith was growing exceedingly. So faith should grow. And it's pleasing to God when faith does grow. Well, what kind of faith is that? Remember over in Mark chapter 11, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it dried up from the roots. The next morning, the disciples saw it and Jesus explained to them, have faith in God. Now, if that had been the gift of faith or special faith, a measure that comes outside the ordinary measure that can be developed by the believers through the word of God, then Jesus did an injustice by telling them that they could have that faith. In other words, it's general faith that he cursed the fig tree with. Now, that may be a greater measure of faith than you and I have developed to, but it's still general or developing faith. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's talking about a special measure of faith. Now, there's another place in the, uh, in the scripture where faith is referred to. That's over in Galatians chapter 5. You might want to turn over there when it gives us a list of nine things uh, that are called the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 says in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, some translations, and I think it's a, a, a more accurately translated, instead of faith, is faithfulness. But no matter what we want to call it, whether we call it faith or we call it faithfulness, it's talking about a character trait that comes as a result of believing God, that comes as a result of having made Jesus the Lord of your life. Now, this list of nine is not for power. The list of nine manifestations of the Spirit over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are manifestations for power. To minister to other people the supernatural things of God. This list of nine over in Galatians chapter 5 is a list of fruit or character traits that should be developed in the life of every person that's made Jesus their Lord and Savior. Now here's the unfortunate reality. Sometimes you'll have people operating in the list of power gifts or the manifestation of the list of nine manifestations of the Spirit given for power that haven't developed in character. 
On the other hand, you can develop yourself very highly or greatly in character and not have any of the manifestations of the Spirit. And so for that reason, a good deal of the church is at odds with one another because some are emphasizing the development of character traits or the fruit of the Spirit, which is good, admirable, something the Bible tells us to do, but they ignore the manifestations of the Spirit that are given to us to minister in the supernatural things of God. On the other hand, you've got some Pentecostal groups that believe in the the power, the list of nine manifestations of the Spirit, but they give no emphasis whatsoever to the development of character. So you've got one group that's cold and stiff, but full of love. You've got another group that's full of power and as flaky as can be. That's not the way it's supposed to be, folks. We're supposed to develop ourselves in the character of God to a great degree, to operate in a very high level in these character traits that emulate and influence people according to God's nature and his, and his character and then operate in the supernatural to do that which goes beyond man's ability. So we know that this special faith that's being talked about over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is not the character trait of faith. It's not saving faith. And it's not faith that can be developed through the practice and the teaching and the study of God's word. Well, what is it then? Well, special faith is a supernatural ability given by God to receive miracles. I think it's important for us to distinguish between the working of miracles in special faith. And there's a really a very fine line. Because as I said, the gift of faith or special faith is a supernatural ability given by God to receive miracles. Working of miracles is a supernatural ability given by God to perform a miracle. Miracles are the results in both cases. One works it and the other receives it. Now turn back with me to Joshua chapter 10. I think one of the greatest, uh, well in my opinion, the greatest example of the gift of faith is here in Joshua 10. Now without reading the whole chapter, let me just catch you up on what's going on in the story. Joshua is the leader of the children of Israel. He's taken Moses' place and they've crossed over the Jordan River and entered into the promised land. Their first battle is the battle of Jericho, the city of Jericho. They take that. You remember the walls fall down. Then there are other cities. They begin to advance into the promised land and take possession of the promised land and so forth. And they come to the place where they've defeated enough cities to where all the kings of the regions and apparently each territory, each smaller territory would have its own king. And so all these kings get together, 10 of them get together and say, if we don't do something together about this group of Jews children of Israel, then they're going to swamp us and overtake our whole land. So all 10 of them band together to come out against the children of Israel. It's the greatest battle. It's the greatest enemy, the greatest forces, military forces that Israel had ever faced up until that point in time. We'll pick up the story in verse, uh, verse seven. It says, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of the war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. How'd you like I did pretty good with those words, didn't I? I have no idea if I said them right. Verse 11, And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. There were more which died from the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. This is a good day for Israel. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, 
Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou, moon, in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Now notice verse 14. And there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Someone once described the gift of faith as when God heeds to a man's words as his own. Now, we're going to have to, to consider a couple of things here when it comes to special faith because the Bible really never identifies what works take place because of special faith. There are some things that we can see, some things that we can see clearly, some things we can speculate about and so forth. But God doesn't have a way of labeling what he's doing for us to take it apart later on. So we're left to take the scripture and judge things by what the Bible says. Now, is there any possible way for Joshua to come to the place where he could have some kind of developed faith. Couldn't be saved in his day. So that what couldn't be saved in faith certainly. But is there any way that he could have developed his own faith. To stop the sun and the moon. Well what scripture would you go to for that? I, I dare say that we'd all like more time in our day. But has anybody been successful in stopping the sun and the moon? That's got to be something that's given to you outside of your own abilities. It's got to be a supernatural measure of faith. Now, here's the thing about faith, and that is from saving faith to general faith or developing faith, all the way up into special faith, a supernatural manifestation of a greater measure, a miraculous measure of faith, it all works the same. It works by believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. So therefore, we can identify certain things as beyond our ability to to develop faith for something because the Bible doesn't say so. Let me say that in a better way. If the Bible doesn't give you instruction or information or some word to stand on to perform something miraculous, then how are you going to have faith for it except the Holy Ghost gives it to you? Raising of the dead is a good example. Turn with me over to... to, uh, well, I, I'm ahead of myself. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 3, first of all. Acts chapter 3. Peter seemed to be, in my opinion, you judge this for yourself, but in my opinion, Peter seemed to be used in a special ministry where the, the special faith would operate through him. Acts chapter 3. The story of the, beautiful, the man at the beautiful gate of the temple that's healed. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. He's begging for money. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Now let me ask you a question. Notice this guy, it says this guy was laid daily at the gate of the temple. This is the same gate that Peter's gone through many, many times before. This is the same gate that Peter's gone through with Jesus many times before while Jesus was here on the earth during his three years of ministry. Why hadn't anybody gotten this guy healed yet? Why this day? Why this special occurrence? Or maybe a better question is, why not before? Why didn't Jesus heal him? Now, in, in, uh, for me, and again, some of this is, is just me interpreting what the Bible says 
to fit the things that the Bible instructs us about concerning the manifestation of the Spirit. Jesus is a harder read for me. We know that the Bible says that Jesus himself told us that the works that he did, the miracles and so forth that he did, he didn't do of himself. So that means he's operating just like you and I would under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. But that doesn't discount the fact that Jesus had a much more highly developed sense of faith or level of faith than you and I have. Uh, We're safe in saying that, aren't we? Anybody in here claim to have the same level of faith that Jesus had? I've got a tree we need to get rid of out and back. (laughs) We'll test you out overnight. But think about that. I mean, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it dried up from the roots overnight. And that wasn't special faith. If it was special faith and he told them to have faith in God to be able to do the same kind of things and even greater things than that, when he did it by manifestation of the Spirit, then he lied to them. But he didn't lie. So it was his own faith developed. But concerning Jesus, on the other hand, you remember on the cross, Jesus said, Do you not think that I could call on 12 legions of angels to deliver me from this thing? Well, how could he have called the 12 legions of angels? Would that have been special faith? Well, it's certainly not special faith in operation because he didn't do it. The Holy Ghost wouldn't have manifested himself to do something that would be contrary to God's plan of redemption, right? Yet Jesus says to the thieves, the two thieves, that he has the ability to do it, which means his faith, what we would call developmental faith or general faith, has been developed to the point where he could call 12 legions of angels. That might be a little bit above our level. What do you think? So Jesus is a harder read for me. I can't uh, see as clearly in the ministry of Jesus as I can in the ministry of Peter and Paul and some of the others. Do you understand what I mean by that? Okay, back to Acts chapter 3. Peter and John see this guy. Peter speaks to him and gets him healed. Now, what was the cause of that? How come that wouldn't be a gift of healing? Why wouldn't that be a working of miracles? Well, the only hint that we have is a little bit further down where Peter tells us something about what's going on. First of all, most of the church world says that Peter did this because he was an apostle and that these signs and wonders were a part of the early church where they're not supposed to be a part of us. But notice in verse 12 when Peter saw that everybody was so marveling at this miracle. When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel... Why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk? So Peter says right up front, here's what it wasn't. It wasn't some power of ourselves. It wasn't because we're apostles, in other words. And it wasn't because we were holy, more so than anybody else, that this work occurred. Now those are the two things that the modern day church tries to explain away the supernatural, specifically healing and the work of the Holy Ghost. By saying, they said Peter could do these things because he was an apostle. The apostles had a special place with God and they had special power with God. Peter just said neither one of those two things are true. Now, granted, who is Peter in the face of modern day preachers? I thought they'd get a laugh. <laughs> the question is, who do we want to believe? I'm going to stick with Peter because he would know better than anybody else. Well, then what was it? If it wasn't special power or special holiness on your part, he goes down and preaches to him a little bit. In verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. Well, if healing glorified Jesus in the early church, why wouldn't healing glorify Jesus today? I mean, God's picking the ways for him to be glorified, isn't he? God never changes. So healings and supernatural works of the Holy Ghost still glorify Jesus. According to Peter, who's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So he says, the God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. 
But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And killed the prince of life whom God has raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. Now notice verse 16. And his name through faith in his name. So what is he saying? He's saying it's faith in the name of Jesus that did it. But what kind of faith? Can't be just saving faith. So it's either going to be special faith or general faith that any believer can operate in. How many of you have ever walked into a grocery store or a Walmart or something like that and seen somebody crippled out front asking for money and the thought flashes in your mind to raise them up like Peter did in Acts chapter 3? Folks, I've never seen anybody in one of those situations that I don't think that. You ever try to do anything about it? I've watched people do it. I've watched people try to raise them up. And oh, what a mess it is. Well, notice what Peter said. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, notice the next phrase. The next phrase, in my opinion, is the key. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. If you take apart what Peter is saying, he's saying the name of Jesus is the name that's greater than any name, greater than paralysis, greater than sickness, greater than disease, and so forth. And the faith that we used in that name to raise him up wasn't our own. It was by him. I believe it's a measure of special faith. I believe it's the gift of faith in operation here. Now let's turn over a little bit and watch Peter's ministries develop. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to skip over the part where people were healed under Peter's shadow. Because I'm not sure what that was. Now some people will say, well, Pastor Mike, shouldn't we know about all these things? Well, the Bible says that God does some things as signs and wonders. What is a wonder if it doesn't leave you wondering? Some of the things that I see operating in the in Scripture, I can see that it was God, and I know it was a work of the Holy Ghost, but I have to wonder what it was. Now, if that's not good enough for you, when you get to heaven, you can ask Jesus, and he can tell you that I was right. There's an element of mystery to anything that's supernatural. Which means we're not going to be able to figure out every little detail of all the things in the Bible. Because that would remove the supernatural element of the mystery involved in it. Some things we're just not going to know. So the things that I don't know is what are the things I try to stay away from. Now in Acts chapter 9. Notice it says in. Uh, well let's start in Verse 33. Now, verse 32. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which he had, had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. I love how the Bible says people were sick of palsy. Not sick with palsy. He was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Another translation says, and the, the, the tenses of the words that are used here indicates that Peter is saying Jesus has already done something. Not he's doing something now, but something has already occurred. Other translations say, Jesus Christ healed thee. Not is healing, but past tense, has healed. So he said, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed, and he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Let's skip down with me a little bit. Well, let's just keep reading. Rather than tell the story, I'll read it. Verse 36. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which, was, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. Whom, when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh unto Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping, and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth, 
He did the same thing Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. He cleared the room. Jesus only left the mother and the father and Peter and John with him. So Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed and turning to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Now notice in both cases, it says that these manifestations of the spirit, I believe it was special faith. Because Peter doesn't preach Aeneas a sermon. Contrast this with Acts chapter 14 where it talks about Paul was at Lystra and there was an impotent man or a crippled man who was crippled in his feet from his mother's womb. The same heard Paul speak. Who, Paul, steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he, the crippled man, had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now the man in Acts chapter 14 was healed on his own faith. Paul perceived that he had faith. Well, how do you get faith? You get faith by the hearing of the word. Romans ten seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the gospel that Paul preached had to include healing for the physical body because that's what the man had faith to receive. Here, we have no record of Peter saying anything other to this crippled man other than Jesus Christ made thee whole. Well, then whose faith is doing the work? Miracles can't be wrought without faith on the part of somebody. Bible makes that real clear in James chapter 1. It says the man that doesn't operate in steadfast faith, even wavering faith, shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. It's steadfast or unwavering faith that receives from God every time. So somebody's faith has to receive here. We don't have any record that's Aeneas. And this is very similar to the Acts 3 example of the man at the beautiful gate, isn't it? Peter doesn't preach him a sermon. He just tells him, I've got something for you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. See, I see special faith in that operation. Now, as far as raising the dead is concerned, that has to be special faith. Now, some people will point back to Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sent out the 70. And one of the things he said to the 70, he said, go into the cities and preach the gospel of the kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast, uh, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils, and so forth. And some people will say, well, that's part of the Great Commission for us to raise the dead. Have you ever tried it? I've seen that happen too, where people tried something. I watched it with my own father. I watched two people, two individuals, met well. After my dad died, he was in the morgue part of the hospital. And they stood there for 30 minutes commanding him to live. Well, that would have been great if it had worked. But you can't perform these things under the flesh. These are manifested as the spirit wills. And no matter how bad you try or how much you want to or how sincere you may be, you can't make spiritual things work through the operation of the flesh. I've also seen people raised from the dead when the manifestation of the Spirit's in operation. It's got to be a faith that comes from beyond you. Smith Wigglesworth had this experience 20-something times. There's, I say 20-something because... There's a discrepancy between how many people beyond 22 were raised from the dead in his ministry. So let's just stick with 22. You would expect that if it happened 22 times in your life or in your experience, you'd know something about it, wouldn't you? Well, Wigglesworth was being asked about this. And he said, he was talking about the first time that it occurred. And he said, I penetrated heaven with all of the faith I had. And the answer was no. He said, but all of a sudden, there was something that came down from heaven upon me that wouldn't take no for an answer. Now, if that's not a good de uh, definition 
of what special faith would be from somebody that had experienced it on numerous occasions, then I don't know what it is. Now turn back with me to, uh, well, where do I want to go? Let's look at, uh, at John chapter 11. Here's a, a situation with Lazarus, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This one is, uh, like I said, I have a little bit more trouble seeing things clearly in, uh, as far as the manifestation of the Spirit in operation in Jesus' ministry. But this one's a little bit easier for me to see. John chapter 11 tells us the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 1, I won't read the whole thing, but we'll get a, pick a couple of verses out to get the gist of the story. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. Now Jesus knows something supernaturally. There's got to be revelation here. It's got to be the word of wisdom in operation. He knows what the outcome of this story is going to be. Now, based on the the language, it's easy to, to interpret this as him saying Lazarus won't die. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this, this uh, situation will not end in Lazarus' death. But for the glory of God. So you see an operation of the Holy Ghost in Revelation, the word of wisdom, in operation first and foremost. First thing that happens is the word of wisdom. Then they spend several days where they are. Spend, uh, what is it, two days still in the same place, verse 6 says. Then after that, verse 7, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou there again? And Jesus says, well, we'll go, we'll walk in the light, and so forth. Verse 11, these things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he's asleep, he shall do well. They're thinking that he's sleeping, a rejuvenative type of sleep as a part of the healing process. But Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. That's a poor translation. It literally says Lazarus died. Lazarus died. So when Jesus says he's asleep, he's still operating according to that word of wisdom that he received on the outcome of this situation. What is this going to turn out to be? He's not calling it an end. But he does recognize that Lazarus has died physically. So he said Lazarus died. And I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us now go to him. I've got to read verse 16. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples. Remember, Thomas is the one that wouldn't believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Thomas said, let us go also that we may die with him. Thomas is that guy in the crowd that says, we're all going to (laughs) die. Even Jesus had one of those. So they get to the place where Jesus is. The, the situation occurs, you know, we won't take time to read between Mary and Martha and talking to Jesus and so forth. And it says, um, verse 32, Then when Mary was come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit. And I want you to notice that phrase. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Something happens to Jesus. Now what's Jesus troubled about if he's already had a revelation from the Holy Ghost that this thing is not going to end up in Lazarus' death? That's not going to be the end of the story. What's he groaning in the spirit for and what's he troubled about? There's some work of the Holy Ghost that's going on with him. It's left to us to determine what that is, but something From the Holy Ghost is taking place. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. 
Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Verse 38, Jesus therefore again groaning in himself. Here's some work of the Holy Ghost upon Jesus. Came to the grave, and it was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Then Jesus said, Take away the stone. And that's when they start arguing. He's been dead for four days. He stinks. And, and please realize that's the problem here. It's the smell. Verse 43, and when he had thus spoken, well, let me back up to verse 41. When they took away the stone from the place where the the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Now stop and think about that. He said, I thank you that you've heard me. What does that mean? Does that mean he's already prayed about this? And God's already heard him? Or is he speaking in faith, saying, I know what you're I know you're going to hear what I'm about to say because of the revelation of the Holy Ghost and the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit upon me? That's for you to determine. The language doesn't tell us one way or the other for sure. It's got to be one of those two. All right, let's consider the first one. Let's say that Jesus has already prayed about this. So he says, I thank you that you've heard me. With what faith is he praying? The Bible says that when we pray in faith, God always hears us. And we receive what we've asked for. So Jesus is either identifying, I've already prayed in faith about this and I believe you've heard me. Or he's saying, I know because of this groaning in the spirit and the work of the Holy Ghost is taking place in me. That the words that I now speak or am about to speak will be heard and and answered in heaven. I think it's the second one. Now that's not to say he hadn't already prayed about the situation with Lazarus. That'd be a natural thing to do. But unless the Holy Ghost has moved upon him early on. And the gift of faith or special faith was in operation when he prayed alone then the question would be, in my mind, what's he groaning in the Spirit for when he's there? See, that's got to be a work of the Holy Ghost. And what work would it be if it's not special faith coming upon him or the work of the Holy Ghost to, to manifest itself in special faith? So then Jesus cries out with a loud voice and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth bound hand and foot. In other words... After four days, he's been mummified. Well, then how's he come out? He commands the people, loose him and let him go. How's he come out? The power of God draws this guy out. He's not walking. The power of God pulls him out. Now, you know the end of this story. This was the turning point concerning who Jesus was and what actions the, the religious, religious leaders chose to take against Jesus. Then many of the, when he was, uh, well, let me just read it. When he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound both hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto him, loose him and let him go. If he was able to walk on his own, then there'd be no reason for anybody to lose him. It's the power of God that pulls him out, folks. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Same thing it said about Peter, exercising what we believe was a special faith, a manifestation of special faith in Acts chapter 9. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees of council and said, What do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. Can't have that. Can't have him helping people out there. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. 
That's when Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up and says, it's expedient for one man to die for the whole nation. He's speaking by the Holy Ghost that leads to Jesus' death. Now, folks, there are times when special faith has been in manifestation in a way that I've experienced. There was... um, in the early 90s, I'm not sure exactly when it was, but it had to be the early 90s. When Do you remember the, uh, those of you that are old enough to remember the early 90s? Remember when the, the AIDS epidemic was first publicized? People started finding out about that, and it was the killer of all killer diseases. And it, nobody knew how it would be contracted or what, what would or wouldn't keep you safe from it and all that kind of stuff. There was a, I won't say panic, but there was a great deal of apprehension around the AIDS virus. Well, there was an 18-month period in the church where three guys with AIDS came to us for, to be prayed for for healing. And I got to tell you, the first guy that came, two of them were drug use. One of them was through homosexual lifestyle. As far as how they contracted the disease, the virus. Well, there was so little known about it. My first thought is, don't touch them. Now, you may think that when we lay hands on people, when we minister to people, the devil doesn't bother you. Think again. The devil will try to do anything and everything he can to keep you from doing what the Bible says to do to help people. He'll put all kinds of thoughts in your mind. Well, first guy I prayed for, he, was, he had contracted it through drug use, intravenous drug use, sharing needles with somebody. I laid hands on him. Bless his heart. He, he felt, well, all three of them felt so condemned about themselves that I, I spent a good deal of time with each one of them trying to convince them that God loved them and he wasn't against them. Whether I got through or not, I can't honestly say. But I laid hands on the first guy, just prayed, Lord, healing from this thing. His immune system had already started to shut down, and he was in pretty bad shape. And so I prayed with all the faith that I knew to pray with, and I was conscious as soon as I finished praying that I had done absolutely nothing for the guy. Now, it wasn't a church service that this was happening in, it's a private meeting between him and me, so I had a chance to spend a little, bit more, a little bit more time with him than normal, that you normally would in an open service or something like that. And so I stopped and I, I said, look, I've got to be honest with you. We didn't make any contact there. So I did the only thing I knew to do, and that is try to build up his faith through teaching the word and that kind of stuff. I shared other, some more things, some of the same things again, and that kind of thing. Spent another five minutes or so. And finally I just said, look, I'm not sure exactly what to do here. So let's just take a minute and just pray in the Holy Ghost. He was spirit-filled. So we started praying in the Spirit. And after about, I don't know, maybe seven minutes, praying in other tongues, something came on me. That's the only way I know to describe it. Something came on me. And I couldn't not get my hands on this guy. I laid hands on him. And at that point, I didn't care what he believed. It didn't matter what he believed. Because I had this something from God. So I laid hands on him. I cursed this thing. Commanded him to be made whole. And from that moment forward, It wasn't an instant thing. But from that moment, day by day, he started getting stronger. Stronger and stronger. And after a couple of weeks, he went back to his regular doctor's visit, and they were trying to keep a close eye on him and stuff like that. The doctor started wanting to run a bunch of tests on him because things had changed. Within a month, the doctor had given him a clean bill of health. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Now, I can tell you from personal experience, when I tried to do what I knew to do 
just on my own faith, there was nothing. But when that something special came on, it wouldn't be denied. The other two, over this 18-month period, the other two were healed too. In different ways, but they were healed. Now, two of these guys, the first guy that I just told you about that had contracted uh, the AIDS virus through sharing needles with somebody in drug use, and the second guy that had contracted through homosexual activity and lifestyle. Both of those guys were healed and stayed healed, maintained their healing for over two years. But then they went back into the lifestyle and they got it again. And their lives were cut short. The third guy we lost contact with, I don't know what happened to him. Now, the only three people that I'm conscious of that I prayed for AIDS were healed. Each one in the same way. Now, the second two were different in that I didn't have to pray for any extended period of time to have a no-so faith to lay hands on. It's like I started with them where I gained with the first guy through praying over a period of time. That's one thing that makes me think that Peter's operating in a gift of faith throughout the book of Acts. Because like I said, when it came to the second and the third guy with AIDS, I just found out that was the situation. And instantly, I had a no-so faith. Now, turn back with me to John chapter 5. Having said what I just said about the two guys going back into their lifestyle, I think it's important that I point this out. I'm three for three with AIDS. And I have nothing to do with it. Because without that something extra, something special, I would have had nothing. Now, I've had it occur in the in church services, regular church services, in the middle of healing lines on occasion. I lay hands on people just in faith or whatever we've ministered uh, in that uh, night or, or whatever the case is. And uh, don't sense anything. But then you come to one person, find out what their situation is, and there's something extra there. I can't explain it. If I could give it to myself, I'd give it to myself all the time for everybody. And it's not like it happens every time we lay hands on somebody. I wish it did. I go for months at a time and don't see it. But then every now and then something will happen. Now in John chapter 5, it tells about the man that was at the pool of Bethesda. Verse 5, and a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying, knew that he had been there a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Notice the first thing Jesus looks for. He's searching for faith. Because faith is necessary to receive from God. Somebody's faith has to be in operation, folks. The impotent man answered and said, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus answering said unto him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. Now we might say, why isn't this a gift of healing? Well, if it was a gift of healing, then it would have worked for everybody that was lame. It would have been a gift of healing for those that were lame or impotent in their feet. We know that it wasn't faith on the part of the individual because the individual indicated that he didn't have any faith. All he had was a recognition of the problem that he was too slow to get in the water when the angel troubled it. So this says to me that it was a gift of faith in operation or special faith. Now, this guy, Jesus conveys himself away. Nobody knows what's going on. The people in the, the synagogue bring him before them, bring the crippled man, now the healed man, before him. And... They're talking to him about a bunch of stuff and, and so forth. Now notice in um, uh, verse 14. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more lest the worst thing come upon thee. Now let me ask you a question. Is Jesus just talking about general principles? 
that if you obey the commandments of God, then God will take sickness away from the midst of you and so forth according to the old covenant? Well, that's possible. Or is Jesus saying that sin in this man's life may have contributed to his situation and needs to guard against that in the future? He had been infirm for 38 years. Either one, whichever one you choose, and it's your choice. I don't have a definitive answer for you one way or another. But whichever way you choose, please notice something. Here's the Son of God who's just worked a healing miracle through what I believe was the gift of faith. On behalf of this man, So it's obvious that it's the will of God for this man to stay whole. Right? Here's the Son of God telling him, it's up to you whether or not you do stay whole. It's up to you whether or not you do maintain your healing. So at the very least, we can say that God wants him to stay well and is telling him how. Can you see that? Even if it was a manifestation of the Spirit, and it had to be, there was no faith on the part of the man. Even with a manifestation of the Spirit, the responsibility is still the individual's. Now, some people have the idea that if God works in a special way, if the Holy Ghost does a miraculous thing, then that's just it forever. Jesus didn't seem to understand that. Now, let me, let me conclude with this. I've gone over time already, but let me conclude with this. There have been times, I'm thinking of a, a situation right now with his family in our church that uh, was told that they couldn't have children. And um, so they made plans and, and carried out those plans to adopt. And when they came and told me about the uh, uh, situation, what the doctors had said to them, young couple, just fairly recently married and they were looking forward to starting a family and so forth. Then uh, they came and told me and they wanted me to agree with them concerning the adoption. So I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. We, were, we met in our offices and uh, they told me the, the deal. And, uh, and, and just I wasn't thinking about anything. I certainly wasn't planning anything. I just agreed with them concerning the adoption. But then I said this. I said, but you will have your own child. Now, folks, there have been times where the Holy Ghost has come upon me to, and impressed upon me to say certain things, that there's an anointing to say it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, prophesy according to the proportion or measure of faith. See, these patriarchs of old were operating in special faith when they would prophesy what was going to happen to their children generation after generation down the road. And so there have been times where the Lord has, has impressed upon me to say certain things. And as soon as I said it, the anointing lifts from me and I think, oh my goodness, what in the world did I just say? But when special faith is in operation, and I had it with this couple. When special faith is in operation, the idea of what did I just say or what if it doesn't come to pass is a fleeting thought. It's almost like you can't doubt. Not that you try to and fail. But there's just something, something there. Well, they did. They adopted and then they had their own child. Just the way the Lord prompted me to say. Special faith is something that works just like ordinary faith, just like saving faith, just like developmental faith, but at a higher level. And we see time and time and time again where an operation of special faith causes a multitude of people to believe. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Well, let's all stand together. Forgive me for going over time. You got to forgive me or your prayers won't get answered. <laughs> let's lift up the hands and thank God for the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Father, for the supernatural. Thank you that this is not just in name only. But there is power 
at work in your church, among your people, as given by the Holy Ghost. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, for the power, gifts of the Spirit, special faith, working of miracles, gifts of healings. Thank you that those operate and flow freely in the church, the church world at large, and this church. Thank you, Father, that healing flows like a river and brings multitudes of people into the kingdom of God. Thank you, Father, that the Holy Ghost still desires to manifest himself to glorify the name of Jesus. Thank you for what you have done. Father, we're not asking for something special for us to benefit us. We'll just believe your word. But we're coming into a day and a time where even believers who have not fed and developed themselves on your word are going to need extra help. Let us be a conduit for that help to be manifested and for that help to flow. Thank you, Father, for the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' precious name. Say it with me. Thank God for the Holy Ghost and for the manifestation of the Spirit of God. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.